Welcome to Commerce Growth Lab, the community for commerce strategies and tactics. I'm your host, Franco Variano. This season, the podcast focuses on speaking with some of the most interesting and successful trendsetters, entrepreneurs, and leaders in commerce. Together, we'll dive into their unique stories, experience their highs and lows, and gain from their insights and experiences as they continue to shape this industry. Find five to 10 people, interview them about, introduce this product to them, ask them what pain or problem would this solve? Why would you buy this? If you were to recommend this to someone, how would you recommend it? What kind of person would you recommend it to? And then say, all right, I will give you the super secret at cost pre-order price minus 10% because I appreciate you. I'll literally lose money on this deal, but you could buy it right now for 40 bucks. Do you want it? And if all 10 people say no, then you haven't found your product market fit. Today, we're chatting with Kurt Elster, the founder and partner of EtherCycle, a top-rated Shopify and Shopify Plus agency based in Chicago. Kurt is also the host of the unofficial Shopify podcast, interviews to help you 10x your Shopify business. Kurt joins us to share his story, how he got into commerce, what it's been like building EtherCycle and his own brand, how he sees the commerce industry evolving, and a ton more. So let's get started. Hey, Kurt, thanks so much for being on the show today. My honor and pleasure. The honor is all mine. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat today. I'm really excited to dig into this episode and talk branding and e-commerce. But before we get into all that, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Where are you from and what did you study? Sure. I'm Kurt Elster. I went to born and raised Chicago, always in the Midwest. I grew up in the Northwest suburbs, still in the Northwest suburbs, got our, our office in a, a mall in scenic Skokie, Illinois, which is kind of cool. And I went to Beloit College in Beloit, Wisconsin, studied business, left, couldn't find a job. It was like 2005, things were getting grim. Got my MBA from IIT Stewart and then started working at uh, as an e-commerce product manager for a local auto parts dropshipping company, which is really where I, like that was my first official e-commerce job. In college, I was selling t-shirts on eBay and whatever. I could get my hands on. So I suppose I started with e-commerce early there. At the same time, went to the University of Chicago for this night school certificate program that they offered downtown and studied integrated marketing, which was this exciting idea at the time of, hey, agencies, there's no longer the idea of like a copywriting agency, like an ad buy agency, like everything. We're starting to see that convergence of creative, digital, ad, all that stuff. So they built a whole certificate program around it. And that, that turned out to be beneficial, that just one year night program. Awesome. So how did that translate into your early career? Where did your interest to start your own business come from? I was at my my e-commerce job. I went to go to work, tie my shoes, and just broke down crying on the couch tying my Converse All-Stars. You know, in retrospect, it was because I had done all this studying, all these plans to become an entrepreneur, to be a business owner, and really was betraying myself, it felt like, by working for someone else, by not being able to take value back, I suppose. But in that process, I learned a ton working there, and I'm, I'm grateful to them for the opportunity. But ended up, I quit my job with no plans, gave seven day notice because I was excited. Two days later in the shower, I thought, you know what, I'm going to start my own e-commerce platform because I didn't know what I didn't know, which is a good thing, got me to do it. And a year after that, the e-commerce platform turned out a lot harder to make than one would think. (laughs) I always laugh when I see merchants go, I'm going to build my own e-commerce platform. I'm like, you have fun with that. Carpenters don't build their own hammers, as I learned. And then we transitioned into a, a traditional web shop and worked our way up from local businesses where I was just slipping letters under their door and uh, 
found myself working, partnering with big creative agencies in the city pretty rapidly, like within a year. A year after that, we were doing work for Verizon on their Super Bowl campaign and doing the digital stuff for that. And we did this big boutique hotel website that's still up today, thewithotel.com. Ding! Plug that for them, for Hilton Hotels. And we hated it. Like WordPress and doing being the low man on the total bowl, hated it. At the same time, I had a friend who owned a bike shop, a local bike shop. He said, I need a new website. I need to sell on it. I hate my e-commerce platform. And I said, I heard of this thing called Shopify. We should try it. And we did it. We loved it. And at the end of it, we said, well, that was easy. And then we did a couple more. And every time the, we loved the e-commerce, it was a lot of fun, spoke to my skills. I didn't even realize it. At the end, we go, well, that was easy. It wasn't that it was easy. It's that we were good at it. So finally, like it took you know years, the light bulb went off. And I said, you know what? Why don't we only do Shopify? And after since then, it's just been a rocket ship. That's a crazy story. So taking it back to the start of EtherCycle, what was it really that pushed you into e-commerce? You know, like What was it about that industry out of all of the things that you possibly could have done that pulled you in? There was something about e-commerce I loved, and I think it was the purity of the experience and the transaction. And I really, I I self-identified as a web designer. And even though I had no formal education in it, I had done, and I knew Photoshop really well, I was comfortable with it, and I started reading on it and really enjoyed it quite a bit and figured that like, okay, I have a talent there that gives me a creative outlet, but I also have this tremendous business background. Well, so then it became a, a natural marriage of those two things. But as a designer working with doing freelance work, I'd be very frustrated building these brochure websites where people would be like, well, my dog doesn't like blue, so it can't be blue. And I'm worried that this stock photo is not racially diverse enough, like the real things that happened. And with e-commerce, it was much easier to get around that because design was no longer subjective. I could readily tie that back to business goals, to key performance indicators, to best practices. And it got us out of that like design revision hell. So just that alone I liked, but then also being able to see a see very easily the clear value you were providing for people it was deeply satisfying. And early in, your, in everyone's career, you get imposter syndrome. It's easy to go away when you're like, hey, you just went from being a seven-figure business to an eight-figure business potentially because of this work. Definitely. Starting off is always the challenge until you get a solid footing. And so you mentioned diving into Shopify specifically with a few stores, but what was it in particular about Shopify at that time based on where the industry was at that, that really appealed to you? So I think we built our first Shopify website in 2011. It's for Amling Cycle, and it's still up today, the same site. Sadly, not responsive, but works. It's amlingcycle.com. Ding, plugged it. And if, if you want to check that out, see what a 2011 Shopify website that was bleeding edge looks like and still works. That's cool. I'm going to go check that out. Yeah, it was a friend shop. I'm a SRAM certified bike mechanic. I worked many summers in this bike shop and he knew he'd followed us. He early on was a mentor to us, Joe Reichert, wonderful man. And he had this platform that was built for bike shop specific. It was e-commerce and you essentially a distributorship owned it and you would pick what lines you carried and it auto populated it. But then it had a whole bunch of restrictions. It was a big pain. So he said, listen, I just you know, he's a small business owner. He owns a bike shop. He wants to be able to sell online. He wants people to be able to see what they sell before they come in the store, essentially do some pre-shopping and not have to worry about the thing. So I just wanted something easy. And I heard Shopify was was easy and fast. And it was this cloud-based solution, which at the time, you know, in 2011, that sounded really cool, especially, you know, after our experience with hosted platforms or WordPress. It's just a unending nightmare where you're married to this thing that you have to maintain 
maintain uptime and security and upgrades. And Shopify hit a lot of early on, it felt partly because of our inexperience and partly because the platform was easy. But because it, it wasn't this open source nightmare, there were limitations to it. And we really liked that. We said, here's, it's a sandbox. We've got tools. We will play in the sandbox with their tools. And then when people said, well, can you make it, you know, print cheeseburgers? We go, well, no, nah, the platform doesn't do that. So that early on, we were actually quite attracted to that restriction. Not having total open-endedness really made the, the projects work much smoother. And again, terrible habit we have, shoot for the moon, regardless of without knowing the risks. And so for this very early project, we committed to doing an entirely custom design and development on a platform we've never worked before. And with Shopify, they had really good documentation and it made it quite easy. It was way easier than building a WordPress theme and it was our first one ever. So we had this great experience and that resulted in, at the time, they were starting, really starting to ramp up the Shopify experts program. And the gentleman who, I think he was like employee number 40, 40 something at Shopify, Dan Evole, emailed me and said, hey, we saw you built this custom theme. It's great work. Would you like to join the experts program? I said, yeah, sure. Why not? Absolutely. Why not? And I get like a trickle of leads through there. And one day I, I wrote like a sales letter to use as our bio because most people are like, here are the services we offer and this is us and blah, blah, blah. And they've got IREA and all they talk about is themselves. So I tried writing a sales letter for my Shopify experts listing where I just talked about, here's what I'm going to do for you, the merchant, and was very upfront about, hey, what are you doing this for? Is it because you want something beautiful or is it because you want to make more money? It's okay to think about it that way. I think even, I think my business partner might have written that line, but it was brilliant where you said, yeah, just lay it all out for them. Just straight up upfront. And that gets people's attention and it strips away, like it separates the wheat from the chaff. So someone who's very like, you know, I want this very subtle and sophisticated design and it has to be beautiful and that's my priority. Okay, then I'm not for you. I like these lean, mean, efficient, brutal designs that are effective, that make money. So I kind of, I turned that into a strength and I rephrased it as, this is what we're going to do for you, the merchant. And then suddenly, wow, we really started to get some leads in the door with the Shopify experts thing. And that's when I felt comfortable with, all right, we're coming off a project that, you know, made me want to tear my hair out, aged me several years, this huge WordPress build for a creative agency, you know, in those, those big projects with big companies and big agencies, they, they run into hiccups. I just didn't want to do that anymore. I wanted to be able to work one-on-one -on -one with merchants, help them grow their business. And it's really, that kind of stuff's really satisfying because you get to see like, man, you're literally changing people's lives. It's very easy to think like, wow, this work matters. It, it's doing something. It's important. This guy's kids are going to college because of work we did, like that kind of thing. It was easy to dive into it. And I'm very, I love entrepreneurs. I love the entrepreneurial mindset. And that was the way to connect, help them and leverage that same, all those same effects in my own life. That's amazing. And so from that first experience to today, what is it, three weeks after Shopify Unite 2018 or so by the time people listen to this, I guess, what has you most excited about where the e-commerce industry is headed? So I love that at Unite, there were a couple of themes and they never mentioned it by name, but it was clear the 800 pound gorilla in the room was Amazon. And they very much phrased as, hey, we are an entrepreneurial toolbox. We are enabling entrepreneurs to have a voice in commerce globally. So I like that idea. It did not at all sound like lip service. It seemed genuine. It seemed like a, a thing they should do. And I was right on board with it because you know Amazon is great. And with Shopify, you can sell on Amazon. You can have Amazon fulfill your stuff. But as of this year, Amazon accounts for 43 cents of every e-commerce, of every dollar spent online. Isn't that insane? Yeah, that's a bit insane. Like at what point are they too big to fail? Maybe we're already there. And that, that should scare people a little bit. So they should at least start to question it. 
Like, hey, is this right that this is happening? Should we be concerned that Amazon is like the only thing going? You can now play on Amazon's platform, leverage the stuff they're doing and be selling in your own store. But the focus to enable entrepreneurs that Shopify had was twofold. If you've got an existing store, they just made it easier than ever to go international, which is just like such an automatic win to grow a business. So if you've got a product that I have a client who had a product sold really well in the US, had great business. So she found a, a warehouse in the UK, shipped the stuff, put it up there, used the same ads, ran them in the UK. They're way cheaper because Facebook is less competitive there. And she said, I'm going to sell 50 grand in 60 days. She sold 50 grand in 10 days using exactly the same, we set it up for is the same website, same ad campaigns. We just ran them in the UK and it worked. So seeing Shopify go, all right, we're about to make that experience just unbelievably brain dead simple for the merchant and way better and slicker for the customer than I know, oh man, you just suit like any existing business that wants to go international. You made it so easy for them. You've now made this a, a genuinely global game. Whereas previously, like most, even though Shopify is in Canada with you in Ottawa, which I love, amazing city, it's very US centric. And we, we always, they phrase it as North American, but it is, it's basically the United States as a majority of merchants. So being able to see that, that democratized easily. And then a there is a focus on automation. But what's the end benefit of that automation? Well, you're going to have um, merchants who are now enabled, empowered to tell their story to make, to include themselves in their brand more easily, to have this one-to-many communication where that's the thing that Amazon can't take away from them. Amazon is this giant, you know, near monopoly Microsoft in the 90s-esque mega corporation. And you are a guy. Like you can now put your personal brand, people, and I believe people want to buy from people, not brands. So if you want just like super convenience, you could go, hey, Alexa, reorder my, my brain pills or whatever, and she'll just mail it to you. It's fine. That's super convenient. That's super cool. I'm glad that stuff is out there. But if you want to, like you care about something, you need something esoteric, you want to connect with a brand, you want that full experience, you're going to buy direct from a, a Shopify store now. Yeah, being able to capture that authentic experience and story behind the merchant, behind the product, who you're supporting, and how these storylines fit into your daily life is, is really critical. And so it's exciting to hear that Shopify sees this and continues to push that forward. Like that's, I talked in very like high level strategy terms and what I think they're doing here. The international stuff you could figure out, they're going to do international payments, they're doing multi-store, is going to work better. Like there's a whole bunch of features that are very clearly, this is for international, is now easier. The only limitation, you got to have Shopify payments. So there's like, those are the tactics behind that international strategy for the, hey, let's connect. Let's make it easier than ever for merchants to connect with their customers and get that message out. I talked to Michael Perry. Shopify acquired his company Kit two years ago, and he now leads up. Well, Kit is still a product. He leads up their team. It's essentially an AI marketing software, but now he's leading up Ping. It's a messenger client. It'll be available first on iOS, they said this summer. So I'm looking in July for that thing to show up, right? And it'll let you talk. They have a live chat on your site. It's going to let you talk to Kit, which is an AI that will make marketing suggestions. So you could functionally talk to your store's virtual employee through this thing, the live chat on your site. Plus, it'll integrate with Facebook Messenger and some other apps coming down the line. That's how we're going to get, you're going to be able to connect with people, get that message out. It's exciting. It's also like, as far as the platform goes, man, there's quite a moat between Shopify and all other platforms. Like this is not a, a feature you can readily just go, oh yeah, that's cool. Well, yeah, we got that too. And you've got a list. No, like, you know, people compare it when they're comparing platforms, they just have to check off. Well, this is the one with the most features. Now we're getting into stuff 
where Shopify is leveraging their scale and their resources that people are not going to be able to just readily replicate. So as far as the business goes, I'm excited to see really advanced stuff being made accessible in that way. Yeah, absolutely. It's a complete game changer. And so you're also a fellow podcaster as the host of the unofficial Shopify podcast. And if folks who are listening couldn't make it out to Unite or miss the live stream, you've done an amazing recap episode. So I totally recommend checking out the podcast in general, but that episode in particular to catch up on all this exciting news that we're talking about as well. But more specifically, over the course of hosting the show, what has been the most valuable insight or lesson you've been able to take from it? Good question. So I have learned, well, over time, I've learned to interview people, which is cool. When I started that podcast, I thought of myself as an introvert and I was awkward and I did it anyway. So like lesson one is, man, do things that make you uncomfortable. You're not going to grow as a person. You're not going to grow your business, at least not as quickly as you could. You know, I don't want to make people do things they don't want to do, but do things that make you like if there's something you want to do, but it makes you uncomfortable. Those are the things that probably have the biggest gains for your business. I've still got the first episodes up there. You can listen to them. They are rough. And, you know, now we're we're past episode 150. I think we're closing in on episode 200. Get 6,000 downloads a week, over half a million downloads total. And it, it has made me probably my number one lead source because people can listen to that podcast and know, hey, I myself on the podcast, I've got it's my authentic voice just as I'm here. That's how I talk in real life. And they go, oh, well, I agree with that guy. He seems smart. He seemed, I could get along with him. I should work with him. So I get on the phone for a sales call. And I said earlier, like, I don't want to be a sales guy. I'm, you know, I used to think of myself as introverted. When I get on the phone with someone, it's not a question of like feeling out if they should hire me. It's a question of feeling out, okay, is he the same guy? Yes. And that's when people go, I feel like I already know you, which is always cool to hear. And then, you know, figure out, all right, well, what's what's the best fit here? What's the project we should be looking at as opposed to selling? It's more just, all right, here's how we can help each other. I don't even write proposals anymore, man. I just send a, a statement of work in an email. It's like, this is this is recapping our conversation. This is what we did. Yeah, that makes sense. It would work with video too. Like there's a, you don't have to do a podcast. There's lots of ways to do this. Even if you did like a really good newsletter, you could achieve the same effect. So like number one, put your authentic voice into your branding and be your own best brand ambassador. And if you can't get someone else, get a brand ambassador. It is hugely powerful and pays dividends. There is a reason why big companies, big brands pay huge money to have spokespeople it's because you can't, like a CEO doesn't work well as a brand ambassador unless you're that nutty dude from T-Mobile. <laughs> so true. So, but with that podcast, um, what else do you want to know? I get a couple, like if you're looking to start a podcast, I got a couple quick tips. Sure. So if someone is looking to start a podcast, what are some of your top tips? Number one, so you get like pick your format and don't make anything hard on yourself. If you want to be on video and you think you'd be good at that and you can do monologues, monologues are the hardest thing. Do that. If you could do it, if you... You know, you like interviewing people, you like talking to interesting people, do that. I like doing that. That's how I do my personal development is if I see an interesting person, I know I have something of value to offer them now. I could say, hey, come talk to me. You know, we'll share, you'll get backlinks out of it. You'll get exposure out of it. You'll be heard by probably 6,000 people. And in that process, hey, I get to talk to you for 40 minutes and we get to know each other. So it's a cool value add. Yeah, I completely know what you mean. Pick a format that is going to speak to your personality. And then everyone always asks me the same thing. They're like, what mic should I get? Who cares? When I started, I had a $30 Samson Go mic. I have never, we had this office with these giant cathedral ceilings that was built in the 20s. It echoed like you would not believe. I never had a single person complain about audio quality. And that's the first thing people ask about. Blue Yeti or Snowball, those are the, probably the two best mics. Grab one of those. They're inexpensive. And find yourself a quiet room, record with headphones. 
in a format you want that can either be like you've always got the same guest, you've got different guests each episode, or it's a monologue, whatever fits your personality, and launch with five episodes. If you launch with five episodes, people know, oh, this thing is for real and serious, like three to five episodes, and then it makes you much more likely to hopefully be able to get into new and noteworthy, and then find a schedule and stick to it. But you're trying it out, so I say our first season is 10 episodes, tell people up front, and they're going to come out every Tuesday at 6 a.m. So if you don't do that, people aren't willing to invest in subscribing in you. And that that's the toughest part. And then over time, it just it grows. It's your business. It's your show. Do whatever the heck you want. Set it up however you want. You don't have yeah. to do what I'm doing. You don't have to do what other people are doing. So just, whatever you're comfortable with, be you, man. You do you. Exactly. Just get started and go for it. So given your unique perspective on e-commerce, how have you really seen the landscape grow and change for merchants over the years? I was around when we were arguing about mobile and, you know, smartphones were starting to proliferate and not suck. And the very early ones, like now we have LTE and it's just lightning fast. Previously, it didn't exist. Previously, smartphones were expensive. It was a luxury item. Now, like I, you can get one free by signing a plan. We first had to go, OK, people are going to use phones and we had to figure out the best way to do it. Responsive one. Great. Makes everybody's life easier. I was on the right side of history on that one. We used to as big dorks used to argue about it. <laughs> it's so funny. I can't even imagine this conversation even taking place. It was a fierce conversation about the right way to do it and the advantages and disadvantages. And what's funny is like, there's a lot of major websites like Amazon. I don't think they have a responsive site. They do mobile switching. So there's still people doing it the supposedly wrong way that we were arguing about you know, years ago. But anyway, what we didn't see coming, we knew people would be on mobile. We knew they'd eventually shop on mobile. We knew at some point it wouldn't suck Early on, it was like browsing. You'd be on the couch, you'd browse your thing, and we started to see like TV, co social commerce, TV commerce, where people would look up a thing on their phone from the couch, but they wouldn't buy. Well, now it was like an intermediary step, which was cool. Now, any random store, I guarantee will have a majority of traffic on mobile. And depending on if it skews younger or they use a lot of Facebook advertising, I'm no longer surprised if I see a store that has 80 to 90% mobile traffic. So you really, years ago, we were yelling about mobile first, mobile first. Well, now it has come true. You, know, you have to be testing on mobile. So there was that big shift in the landscape. Of course, video being accessible was a big shift. Facebook democratizing advertising. You know, I can get the same eyeballs that Procter & Gamble can get using Facebook ads. So it leveled the landscape but it also made it hyper competitive. So you got to be got to be clever. And just as before, people have no patience for anything. You know, so you really need to have a very clean, fast, good experience because they've got they've got more choice than ever. It's a lot of the same stuff, just better, faster, more nuanced, I suppose. The one that surprised me within e-commerce is the tremendous amount of resources and community that sprang up. So I survey people when they join my newsletter and their Shopify merchants consistently They'll say, well, I'm like, what's the number one painter problem? By far, it's being overwhelmed because there's so, and I, when you pry into the question, there's so much stuff out there more than ever. YouTube and podcasts like this one and, and Facebook groups and forums and all this stuff and email newsletters. There's so many places to get educated. When you're listening to these things, you get like a good info marketer type like myself. They make these big sweeping proclamations and here's what you got to do and why aren't you doing this? And people, I could see where they're like, they go, yeah, that's a good idea. I agree with that. They build a to-do list of like everything they've heard because they're trying to do their due diligence. And then they don't know how to prioritize it because we have limited time or money. And then they do nothing. Like they get paralyzed by inaction and dis the decision-making process. So that that's the thing I don't think anyone saw coming 
was just this wealth of free, good information out there. And that it would then, like, if you pitch that to someone five years ago, they'd be like, that's awesome. But now you have people essentially, no one's complaining about it, but really saying like, man, I, I don't know what to do. Yeah, absolutely. You just don't know where to look. And so given all the information out there, which people should still go out and find and read and, you know, continually learn from, but what are some of the first few key business elements new merchants should focus on? Is it building a brand? Is it building an audience? What should they do first? Most people I see do things backwards. A majority of entrepreneurs will say, I've got this idea. And then they'll take the idea, they'll source the product, they'll build the Shopify store, they'll have it behind a storefront password, a couple apps like Crowdfunder, which raised half a million dollars for on one campaign. Dang, plug that one. And among that, you'll get people who really, they're like, I'm going to launch on Thursday. So like, I'll see these support requests. They're like, you got to fix this because we're going to launch on Thursday. And early on, I was trying to be genuine. I said, well, I'd fix their issue and say, hey, you know, I'm curious, what's your launch plan look like? You know, maybe there's something we could do to help. And no one had one. Their launch plan was literally, I'm going to take the password off my store and people will show up, right? And we'll post it on Facebook, of course. And you're like, oh boy. So essentially the, the biggest problem people face is they build it and assume that people will come. And it isn't the case. Getting the traffic to the store is going to be the hardest part. The advice I would tell people if you've had, if I wanted a standard operating procedure for this is number one, validate your product market fit. So you've got your product idea, but do you know who your market is? And do you know that they'll buy it? And this can be as simple as find five to 10 people, interview them about, introduce this product to them, ask them what pain or problem would this solve? You know, Why would you buy this? If you were to recommend this to someone, how would you recommend it? What kind of person would you recommend it to? And then say, all right, I will give you the super secret at cost pre-order price minus 10% because I appreciate you. I'll literally lose money on this deal, but you could buy it right now for 40 bucks. Do you want it? And if all 10 people say no, then you haven't found your product market fit. Yes, it's such a critical component, but is too often overlooked. And as you mentioned, people are, you know, choosing to spend their time focusing on these smaller issues about building the store or photography or whatever before they even have traffic. Yeah. And it could be simply you haven't found the right people yet to buy it. Oftentimes, it really is as simple as you've positioned it wrong. The typical entrepreneurial journey is I've got this problem. My shower water smells, right? Like I'm making some My shower water smells. And I wonder if there's a solution for that. I Google it. There's no solution. Or the solutions that are out there aren't satisfactory. And then I say to myself, well, why not me? And that's the question a lot of successful entrepreneurs start with by asking themselves, why not me? And from there, they come up with an idea. And they go, well, can this be done? And they build it, build it out. And it might be fantastic and wonderful, but then they, they launch to crickets. That's where we see the success of stuff like Kickstarter. And Kickstarter itself, like that's a full-time job running a Kickstarter. But the advantage there is you're, you're defanging the process. You're taking the risk out of it by hopefully being able to find the customers early on before you've invested a ton of money in manufacturing. And depending on what you're manufacturing, it can be very expensive. And being able to run that like through Kickstarter and then transition to a Shopify store. like That, that would be a good way to do it. Or if it's a product that you can get easily made, readily made. All right, buy, you know, buy whatever the minimum order quantity is from your private label Chinese manufacturer, whatever it is. List it on Amazon, see if it sells. Some of my most successful merchants have started with a Kickstarter for their first couple products or sold a whole bunch of products on Amazon. And then they got like one where they go, man, this one outsells all the others by 10x. So we're going to focus on that. We're going to expand on that. We're going to build that into a brand. So they started like in all these cases, they're starting with a marketplace so that they can validate that product market fit first. And then they build the store and the brand and scale it up from there. So I think that that's an important 
really important approach. A recent client who I think did it the right, the quote unquote right way. She had a, a retail store, sells shoes. It's really tough to be in a business where you're reselling other people's stuff. So I'd say, man, just avoid those marketplace ideas. Don't be a reseller, do your own thing or add some kind of unique competitive advantage in there. But aside from that, she didn't start with a website. She opened a brick and mortar store in a like a touristy vacation town and just focused on a curated selection that people liked. And then she started a Facebook page. And on the Facebook page, that's where she would communicate with her customers and list her goods. That worked really well. Like she ramped up, had something like 90,000 Facebook fans and no store at all. People ordered by local people came into the store and national people or people who visited on vacation and then went home would follow them and they would message on Facebook. And then I think she'd send like a PayPal invoice or they would just call up and place the order over the phone. And that was how she built the audience, validated the her product market fit, proved that she could sell online. I don't know how long that went for. And then finally said, all right, you know, I've done the research. I've listened to your podcast. Let's build our Shopify store. And I said, wow, your approach, you did it the right way. But it's like, that's the, also the hard part. Marketing the thing is the really, really hard part. So people don't want to start with that. And I think another thing that happens is they just, they don't want to face failure. So they, they want to do research and ask questions and screw around. And all that stuff is important, but sometimes it becomes a form of procrastination. When you have to go out, you've got your baby and you have to go out and ask people, hey, do you love this? And you get, you know, everybody says no. That's hard. You know, it hurts. I get it. But it's not a failure if you pivot, if you learn from it and just then shift and move on to the, the next thing. Yeah, absolutely. Very well said. I think there were a ton of insights in there for folks listening to kind of take back to their own businesses. So on a similar note, and I mean, I keep hearing a very similar message coming out of this conversation as, as we've been talking, but in terms of a recap or as a way to culminate the conversation, do you have any final thoughts or words of advice to leave us with? The thing that I avoided that I wish I had figured out sooner was the importance of mindset. I thought it was just self-help BS. I was totally wrong. Mindset's important. It really, it is the, the lens with which you see the world. Early on, a lot of people are scared of competitors and I could see it like they'll ask me to sign an NDA and I have to be like, you, what you probably want say non-compete, but either way, we don't sign them if you don't trust me enough to know that I won't snitch. Like you could tell someone's green when they ask you to sign an NDA just to have a discussion about their thing because it means they don't realize how hard it is to build it. Like if they knew how hard it was, they wouldn't be worried about people stealing it, right? But okay, grab a couple books on mindset, focus on mindset. But number one, you have to adopt this abundance mentality where you go, man, there's a billion people in the world. Shopify is international. There's only you know half a million stores running. That's not that many. There's more than enough customers to go around, right? We're really not competing directly with each other. It's not a zero-sum game. You know, if I sell t-shirts and someone else sells t-shirts, guess what? Someone could buy both our t-shirts. So I would just absolutely put that idea of like, oh, I got to hide from competitors. Put all of that out of your mind. It will immediately free you up from a whole bunch of worry. And then that will let you go get active in the community. You will get the most value by far by participating in various e-commerce communities. Number one, wonderful Facebook group, Shopify Entrepreneurs, run by uh, Jonathan Kennedy. It's got like 80,000 members. It's crazy. If you commit to a whole bunch of them, you'll make yourself crazy. I say like, you know, try a bunch and then just leave all of them until you've got two or three. That will become your, your mentor space. And focus on, on that, focus on being part of the community and share your journey. When you talk about your successes and failures and what you're building and how you're doing it, people aren't going to like run and steal your idea. And no, they're going to want to help you. You're going to help each other. My final thought on this is my, when people ask me, oh, what's your favorite feature on Shopify? 
without a doubt, it's the ecosystem. It's that partner program. It's the the community. It's the space around it. Last year's Unite, I asked uh, Harley Finkelstein, Shopify's COO, I said, what's your number one recommendation for Shopify merchants? And he said, talk to each other. And he was right. Like that's the really successful store owners, my really like big successful clients, let's say like someone like tacticalbabygear.com. That's a cool site, really proud of it. That guy's not afraid of competitors because he knows like, man, even if someone ripped him off exactly, it's just time to innovate more and they won't have his personal brand. And that's the thing they don't get. But he's like, knows everybody. And he's at like, he gives talks, he posts these videos. He's like, hey, here's what we're doing. Here's how we do it. Just lays it all out there. That consistently, that mindset and that community driven approach has empowered a majority of my extremely successful clients. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And so just to make sure folks listening can get in touch with you and learn more, although we will be linking all your profiles in the show notes so people can find it there. But where should people go to learn more about you and what you're up to? If you want, go to curdelster.com, Google Curdelster, sign up for my newsletter. It's not, you're not going to get a ton of automated emails, just a few. And in there, I'll send you whenever I post new resources, this way you won't miss them. They'll be in your inbox. And if you reply to any of those emails, it will go to my real email address. If you send me a thoughtful question, I will send you a thoughtful reply. That's awesome. Thanks so much for being on the show today, Kurt. Really appreciated having you on. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Commerce Growth Lab is recorded and produced by me. There's no massive team behind it, and so I'd love your help in growing the show. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Tell a friend about the show or share a link on social media. You can find out more about the show, our guests, and everything commerce related by visiting our site at www.commercegrowthlab.com. Follow us on Twitter at ComGrowthLab, that's com with two M's, or join the community on Facebook at Commerce Growth Lab. We couldn't do the show without your awesome support, so thanks for listening.